dystoplicans of the world. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The morning of June 13th, 1953 is where today's story will begin. Meseta del Cielo shared borders with La Costa del Norte, Las Grandes Cascadas, País del Carbón, La Gran Lanuda, and Bahia del Mercado. This meant that the province was surrounded by more than half of a country it seceded from. There's seldom been dispute that the plateau and inner slopes were a part of Meseta del Cielo, but the outer ones and vicinity beyond them were a different story. Few periods of time made this dynamic more factual than the one that saw Alexis Jr. rise to power. Halfway up the outer slope, the perimeter Theodore erected right after Gregorio Sr.'s fall was how he held onto what was left of the old regime. His American Brumelia possessed the half above the makeshift border and Alexis Jr.'s Brumelia controlled the one below it. The perimeter was among the world's most convoluted and militarized dividing lines. It would be ground zero for the acrimonious stalemate between the people, colonists, and joint American Brumelian forces. Brumelia's flag proudly waved toe-to-toe with those from the United States and American Brumelia. Even with the thousands of soldiers ready to engage on impulse, the perimeter had a major weak spot neither side was aware of. It wasn't always a single line, as solid rock often forced it to split off into two parallel ones, but failed to open it an inch. But in one break, that same mineral worked with its natural mother to hide a town in a sharply sloping valley that was technically neither Theodore's nor Alexis's. A solid gray heavily rained on the darkened green that mostly camouflaged Sardgium, including a glass house that held onto the hillside for dear life. The wildlife thriving about soothed Mara's nerves, making her body tightly cuddle under the bed covers. Holding hands, Morrow Jr. and Irianne walked to their balcony, appreciating a wilderness impervious to all things outside its boundaries. Donato used the rain to moisten his soap bars so that he can use them to wash his arms, chest, belly, legs, feet, hair, and face. Cretan gripped a bathroom sink and stared uneasily at its drain hole, thinking of his and his friends' failed attempt on Olivaldea's existence. Asked by Javiera if all was right with him, he was slow to show her an apprehensive frown that really cheesed her off. She didn't like that he was still dwelling on the failure that forced them and their friends into hiding. For the seventh time, Javiera told Cretan that neither they, Mara, Maro, Donato, or Irian have to worry about Gregorio, 
Alexis, Bromelia, or the world anymore. Elsewhere, in Sardgiam, a spy working for Alexis and another who was under Theodore's payroll handed Pruss Blue Robin's notes that detailed the town's exact coordinates. The birds took flight and handed Sybil and Isidra those numbers becoming the destination they ordered Elspeth and Antonia to direct their troops to. Troops from Brumelia and American Brumelia loaded machine guns, fortified their bodies in armor, and pepped themselves up for a hell of a fight. Both sides had no clue that the enemy army knew of Sargium's existence and were in the dark when it came to how the town's residents viewed them or the opposing side. Elspeth and Antonia expected their operation to be a land grab and population roundup that could be accomplished by dusk. To Sybil, Sargium was Alexis's key to completing his takeover of Bromelia, but Asidra saw the town as Theodore's chance to commence an offensive to liberate the Bromelian people from the communist boot. Two well-maintained tombstones rested side by side on a trim slab of grass belonging to Marosart Sr. and his wife, Sally. June 13th was the day that saw the couple meet their demises for reasons Mara and Maro Jr. would rather leave undiscussed, compelling Donato, Irian, Cretan, and Javiera to feel the same. The peace that respected Morrow Sr. and Sally's graves was a far cry from how their lives played out, which was its antithesis more often than not. Mara and her friends took turns leaving green daisies under the tombstones' subtle shadows. Their guardians had a lot in common with another pair they loved to no end and aspired to be like. No deeper than a foot, a clear river stream was now a somewhat copious red thanks to a pile of adult teenagers who were gruesomely stabbed to death. The number of wounds and quantity of blood lost was uncountable and immeasurable, soaking the corpses as well as the adolescent timidly staring at her diabolical handiwork. Her floral dress was now covered in blood, and so were her two butcher knives and herself from her bare feet up to her blonde hair. She was none other than Eldon Sr.'s mother, Galene, a walking project Mara and her friends had been working on. Her massacre was merely a sample of her vicious power, but her angelically timid and slightly open-mouthed look back displayed her teen age for her keepers to smile at. Mara praised Galen for never disappointing and being thorough every time, calling her one step closer to joining her friends out in society. She added that Theodore and Alexis can play their little toe and fro all they want, as she, her friends, and their projects have something much more meaningful to pursue. 
Galen said that she'll make her keepers proud as others before her have and called herself an invulnerable feat. Yet she and they were unaware of what lurked outside of Sardgium, and it wasn't the two armies preparing to storm the town. One mile north, Dean Sr. and Joyce were camping at a provincial park that was ruinously halved and left to rot after Gregorio Sr. was deposed. But they also had Wilford, Roslyn, Hollis, Suzanne, Marshall, Kelly, Barrett Sr., Beasley, Blanton, and Milligan with them. Indirectly under Isidra's supervision, those twelve and others were tasked with guarding a mile of perimeter that wasn't precarious in the eyes of almost all due to its perceived lack of population and municipalities. Because there were so few inhabitants, making that area impregnable proved to be easy and quick. Miles, such as the one guarded by the Twelve, were known as party platoons for giving its soldiers little work to do and lots of time to play. They spent their days doing their foot patrols, drinking lager, eating wild animals, and relaxing to nature's tune, a life they and their comrades lived for the past five months. But in recent days, that leisure grew boring and had them wishing for a sprinkle or two of danger onto their lives. That wish was granted two days earlier when the platoon scaled the formation enclosing Sardgium and cut Galen, bashing the river with a worn club. Her youthful femininity was so delicious to them that they could taste the good they sought to feel at her expense. The platoon planned on making their move after dark when Galen was asleep so that she won't have the time and be too groggy to escape. It was really a matter of finding where she dwelled in near-pitch darkness and using as little time as possible. Although there wasn't much for the platoon to do, they were still duty-bound to guard their mile and neutralize any people colonist that attempted to breach the perimeter. In the end, the Twelve stayed behind to do the late-night rounds while their comrades did theirs earlier in the day and ventured into Sardgium. Their plan was to kidnap Galen, take her back to their housing quarters, and have her as their doll to vilely exploit. The Twelve did their morning patrol with a work ethic that saw a juicy reward at the end of the tunnel that was their 8-hour shift from 6.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. When their comrades did not return to report for their rounds, they were worried but reluctantly went along with covering for them. The Twelve's worry intensified as the number of hours they covered increased, seeing the sun set and rise again. Fearing that something bad had happened, they switched on their distress siren, summoning Antonia to their quarters and disturbing Mara, her friends, and Galen's lives in peace. 
the Twelve's rights to be alive were their reason for not bringing up their dereliction of duty or unauthorized venture into the enemy's territory. Their story was that some demonic force kidnapped their comrades as they slept and took them to the other side of the rock formation bordering their mile. Antonia assumed that the Twelve were talking about Alexis's troops as people like her saw them as creations of the devil. She was the first to inform them that beyond the formation was a previously unknown town, suspecting that its people were holding their comrades prisoner. Antonia told the Twelve to consider themselves highly fortunate as she was moments from assigning them the task of seizing Sardgiam. The Sard in the town's name stunned them as it did her as it handed them a chance to deal with Mara and her crew once and for all. Neither Antonia nor the Twelve forgot about how Gregorio wished death on the Sards and their closest associates for failing to capture Olivaldea. It was one of the last decrees they received from the former yellow-crossed ruler, which Theodore renewed once the nest centered around him, causing a rare divide within the movement. Many supported it out of a desire to honor Gregorio's wishes, while a sizable minority blamed the Yellow Cross's fractured state on his intolerance for setbacks. Most of the people who resented that wish believed it was pitiful, petty, and short-sighted, but helped the majority grant it anyway due to their power being nowhere near adequate at that time. Antonia had the Twelve join the troops that escorted her in raiding Sardgium, breathing in the expectation that it'd be another land seizure. That comfort hardened to trepidation when she was handed an urgent bulletin from Isidra, forcing her to leave oversight of the raid to her number two while she tended to more critical business. Less than a day after Messetta del Cielo's secession from Brumelia, Clemente followed suit but assumed their sovereignty as a microstate. In terms of quantity, their police force was no larger than a platoon, but its quality more than made up for its small size. Like Messetta del Cielo, Clemente too enclosed itself in a perimeter which was where their stalemate with Alexis's forces neared its second year without an eye blink. Within its far west lay the Valverde compound and Merlot mansion, as well as the estates and manors of Bromelia's other elite families. Back then, Clemente and West Clemente was one municipality in the mainland's wealthiest by a gargantuan margin. It was the sole town in Bromelia that could survive independently and not have to beg a foreign power for political sanctuary or unconditionally surrender to the colony. Out on a large balcony, Joby Sr. and Maisie played chess under an umbrella 
that protected them, their table and game, from the heavy rain. He could tell that his sister was still hurting from the scar. Gregorio Sr.'s fall nastily slashed on her psyche. She relied on her brother's long-suffering to not let her grief eat her alive, but prayed for her peers who took the demise a lot harder than she did. He checkmated her king piece with one of his bishops, defeating her after narrowly losing their last four games. Maisie cringed at the fact that her winning streak was over, then gave her brother a nice pat on the shoulder. Joby was proud of himself for improving his skills to the point that he won against the best chess player he knew. Then one of his sister's past lectures forced its way to their minds' forefronts. Maisie described the game as a transitional course for anyone seeking a career in politics or the military. She explained that much of what politicians and militants did revolved around strategy and timing. Maisie told Joby that both attributes must properly align for victory to be the result, as defeat will be certain. Otherwise, that memory was rudely paused by a quarrel in the compound that was far from the only one ongoing. The Mondragons and Castellanoses gathered around Livingston Sr. and Rounds the first as the two found themselves in a stalemate. Their reactions were preempted by skulls cracking, girls wailing, scuffles echoing, and gunshots deafening. Taking cover, the two families thought of how close they had gotten as pen pals separated by ocean and continent. It began with an assignment between a school in Clemente and another in Albalon's capital of Somalba. Livingston and Rounds became pen pals who shared a love for chess and curiosity for the other's country, culminating with the latter convincing his family to meet the former and his clan in person. It was a week of getting to know and living large that the chaos all around them brought to an unceremonious end. In the compound, eight house children attacked Courtenay and Bertha Ferd's wife, Bonnie, out of nowhere during their afternoon tea time. Both ladies fought back with a ferocity that deeply growled at, densely clawed, and brutally heaved their attackers across the room. Angered even more, the children dug their teeth and fingers into Courtenay and Bonnie in an attempt to rip their flesh out like jaws on whole beef briskets. Adelino and Burr rushed in and repeatedly bludgeoned their wives' attackers, enraging the kids who chickened out of attacking into doing so to not lose face with their Sardgiam peers. However, even their help didn't suffice, but this all changed when Grimsby Sr. and Carlisle III got involved. One look was all the brothers needed to realize what they were dealing with, responding to that conclusion by utilizing deadly force 
on the attackers. The attack may now be over, but Adelino, Courtenay, Burr, and Bonnie weren't out of the woods as the severity of their injuries necessitated immediate medical care. Grimsby had the servants rush the four to the hospital at once, saying that he and Carlisle will deal with the bastard dead. The brothers watched the remaining servants stuff the bodies in old sacks and take them to an overgrown rectangle large enough for a suburban home. Excessively healthy brush concealed a covered-up hole like long hair combing over a large bald spot. The brothers were silent in their contemplation and tolerant of the hailing rain, watching their servants reopen the pit, throw the late attackers down it, and bury them. They looked at the deaths with a poignancy that led them to conclude differently. Carlyle pensively grinned in relief, sensing the peace converting the young souls into additions of the earth. Grimsby's urge to throw up on the pit was hard to resist, as the rage and disgust he felt for the late attackers was beyond measure. He thought that he'd be darned if he stooped to their level, so he settled for giving the resting place a spit that told them to enjoy burning to a crisp. Grimsby called himself a naive egotist for thinking that he and Carlyle saw the last of that nightmare, but they'd soon learn how well their ordeal turned out compared to neighboring ones. Families like the Ponces, Inerarities, Madrizes, and Garibes weren't so fortunate in neutralizing the threats that befell on them. Not only was no age group spared death, injury, or trauma, the kids responsible evaded capture and were already elsewhere. The remaining Valverdes joined the Modragones and Castellanoses in tending to the families who had it much worse than they did. Their condoling was broken off by a gunfiring encircle that Clemente's mayor turned president Eugenia made all the more portentous by saying that Alexis had done the inevitable. From the north, the twelve led Antonius troops onto Sardgium without being aware of what was befalling on Clemente. Elspeth was supposed to lead her soldiers' dives onto the town from the south, but she too had more urgent matters to deal with. At bottom, the raids on Sardgium were being directed by subordinate twenty-somethings whose only exposure to the Sards were in textbooks and lectures. Both sides trekked down or up the partial enshroud on tiptoes and with triggers that got happy at anything that remotely resembled a human. Alexis's troops didn't see Sardgium's people as much of a threat and sought to indoctrinate them, whereas Theodore's soldiers took said people very seriously, planning to exterminate 
their comrades in prisoners. 1900 feet in, Sardgium's outermost cabins appeared, intriguing both sides with the splattery spider webs, painting them nearly whole. A red flag flew when a fusty iron smell emitted from the ink like mist from a mouth that hasn't been cleaned in days. It was the first time both sides realized that they'd finally found Sardgium subjecting an already tense mission to an even grimmer alteration. The Twelve wasn't the sole clique involved in the raid as there was a coterie of equal size fighting for Alexis. That union consisted of Kyoline, Kestrel, Duelio, Erasma, Ladislao, Isara, Nicanor, Rayen, Aurelio, Tecla, Hiram, and Mercia. Their platoon was whole and didn't let the aging paint appall them into aborting the mission at hand. Eugenia couldn't take her eyes off a photo of herself, Eugenio Sr., Desiree, Eugenio Jr., Barclay, and Cura from 1892. It was at the fountain her parents built to commemorate the birth of their romance and where other events would be memorialized. Wondering where the regalado love had gone, she stared into a 1901 photo of herself, her family, Bird Jr., Walpole, Hamilton Sr., and all her ex-classmates from the 1892 summer school. It was taken to show the public the entirety of Eugenio Sr.'s administration, a way for the newly elected president to present himself as being of the people. Eugenia turned away from the old photos snappier than the sudden shut of a book, calling those years part of an era that's long been gone. She said that she no longer had any love for her siblings or former school peers and knew that the hatred was mutual. The only family Eugenia had left was the compound, which was why news of its attack pressed her reaction between agonizing grief and unthinkable anger. That press inclined her to announce her okay for Clemente residents to shoot Alexis's troops on sight, saying that predators like him don't deserve habeas corpus after what they've done. This ignited an animus that saw everyday people of all ages arming up to defend the Republic. Nothing on and in Sardgium School was odd other than the rusty iron smell that came from the paint coloring its outer walls and portions of its inner ones. Eldon Sr.'s father, Louis, was putting the finishing touches on an oil painting that he'd been working on for the past three months, all while holding his infant daughter, Louisa. His declaration of that being that was him completing his recreation of a wonderland that bore witness to his and Galen's births. Louis told his sweet, sweet, angelic Louisa that she'll experience that paradise for herself soon enough. 
His daughter's tired yawns had him carry her out of the school into the cabin next door and tuck her in for a nap. Louis returned to the school and scowled at his painting as Galen stomped a dull hello. He greeted her back and could see that she was currently in quite a euphoria which he loved to see as it was his love being in her happy place. Galen threw her knives on the floor and asked him if he was ready for their town's most public display yet. Embracing and locking noses and foreheads, they remembered how beautiful, peaceful, and fun their lives were in their place of birth, Pakalham Albaland. Galen and Louis had parents, siblings, an extended family, and friends as far as their eyes could see, giving few opportunities for boredom and loneliness to set in. They'd love to imagine themselves reliving that heavenly time, but could only do it for so long because of the catastrophic way in which that felicity met its end. Louis didn't mind having the blood Galen shed all over his clothes, commenting that it complemented her cute smile with perfection. She called her latest killings a consolation worth no more than crumbs from a bread loaf, conceding that it feels amazing to plunge scum into their demises, but said that it'll never be enough. Galen said that the only thing that can fill the void in her heart was Pakalham being what it was before those monsters came. Lewis said that she understood as much as he did that their home no longer exists, adding that they'd be better off creating a new one from the ground up and see to it that it doesn't fall like the old. Galen knew remaking Pakalham wouldn't happen overnight, but was willing to treat Sargiam like another step on the journey she and he shared. Lewis said that their home will be remade, whether in one year or a hundred, adding that they'll live to see that paradise rise again by any means necessary. Stomping sprints from outside and the mass of kids their age running with a sharp focus concluded their embraceive moment. Louis and Galen joined their peers in an outdoor pavilion that was thoroughly hidden from the sides but completely exposed above them. Mara and her friends stood at the center of their crowd and looked around with unworried, malicious grins. Irian yelled happy day to the kids of Sardgium and loved seeing the loyalty written all over them. Cretan could tell that the time spent had done its work in making a cohort he'd be proud to claim as his to raise. Javiera explained that the metal chests scattered throughout Sardgium contained everything the children need to spray their visitors into insect dust. Walking further up or down the town, Elspeth and Antonia's troops noticed a bunch of opened, empty chests. An awful stench hit them and got worse and worse until its source was revealed. Rotting corpses piling on Sardgium's 
center quad like big old tires. It was where the two sides first laid eyes or gun muzzles at one another, freezing one in a paralyzing appall and sinking the other into an unspeakable grief. The twelve were prepared for a deadly encounter, yet didn't, and in hindsight should have foresaw making a dire discovery. This had no impact on the fact that their worst fear had been confirmed and that their hideous find would just be an opener. Drunk on hedonism, Mara welcomed both sides to Sardgium by intercom, telling them to make themselves at home because she, her friends, and children certainly will. Bullets swarmed at Elspeth and Antonia's troops like iron-hot locusts with the metal to kill, cripple, and poison. Both sides reacted by firing their own lead swarms at Sargium's children as well as each other, leaving the two cliques to run like prepubescents who didn't know how to fight beyond slaps and bites. Dean and his friends saw the town's southern border barely in sight, but grinded their feet to a stop by Galen and Lewis leaping onto their path from ahead and behind. It was the hasty retreat Kyolene and his clique beat to, halting at the ambushing stop of a pair that had their own history of viciousness, Jansen Sr. and Richelieu. Galen hugged Lewis and laughed like any prideful partner would as he said that it was fancy meeting the Twelve. His dignified chuckle and her genial giggle were so offensive to Dean and his friends that they didn't say a word, then aimed with the intention of spraying the pair to ground human flesh. Before one shot could be fired, the Twelve had their left and right metacarpals blown out by focused bullets from pistols. Kyolene and his comrades suffered the same fate when they attempted to shoot Jansen and Richelieu into oblivion. Both cliques were powerless to stop the two pairs from taking out machetes and approaching with lusts for blood. Inches from connecting a slash, Mara pressed a buzzer that gave the order for Sardgium to be evacuated. Galen, Lewis, Jansen, and Richelieu told both cliques that their behinds were lucky today, vowing to make their paths meet again later. Triple quick was how fast Mara, her friends, and children rushed out of their town, leaving a path of destruction that killed many on the two sides, but only a few of their own. Sargium's people leapt onto leaf piles that collapsed into holes that took them straight down and landed them in parts of a cavern network. Leaves flew, flapped, spun, and swirled how the papers exposing Gregorio and Alexis did during that momentous Friday. It would have been an occasional instance where Sargium was in genuine danger if it were not for the town being nomadic. The settlement in the formation 
was neither the first of its kind nor would have been anywhere near the last as its people had a destination in mind two and a half miles of running ended in mara her friends and children climbing ladders that led out and on a forest's sequestered opening while what went down in sargium was practically over the same could not be said for the attacks in lobotown alexisville and clemente as they were heating up eugenia's concern grew when she learned that her army and people had fallen a hundred yards back dropping like flies and getting purposely trampled on in the process she received an anonymous letter that identified eugenio jr as the writer informing her that he'll soon be at her door to end their story's final chapter eugenia gripped the skin where her temples were and yelled that she'll be the one finishing the saga and not him close to leveling clemente's towering border alexis's troops wondered why the town's army and people were putting on gas masks while running away suddenly pipe-like poles pricked their rises from the rubbled border pointed their fingers outward and blew a cloudy ammonia hypochlorite mix that instantly decimated the breachers it was the same smoke theodore used to annihilate the children who attacked his capital after intentionally luring them into its tunnel-like rotunda he had every door or crack leading beyond said room sealed poured himself a glass of sherry then got buzzed watching the mix do its job and on his belief that justice was served alexis unleashed the full might of his army to step on the attack on alexisville like a bug telling his people to prepare for a spectacle unlike any other his troops led the attackers who surrendered across the city for its citizens to throw trash at and disparage to their hearts content josephine informed alexis of the arrests and said that the call was his as far as their fates were concerned arousing a smirk under an ego's euphoria had theodore and alexis's troops met at any other situation they'd be gunning each other down like the predatory animals they were trained to be but since death was everywhere and by an entity neither was a part of their focus was on scooping up their dead this allowed theodore's troops to abduct kyolin and his clique and for the soldiers on alexis's side to do the same to dean and his friends elspeth and antonia didn't discover the kidnappings until finding that both groups hadn't been accounted for both declared separate hunts for the heads of each person involved in the abduction they cared about issuing generous bounties for any information that may result in capture news of the mass casualties devastated elspeth sybil isidra and antonia made theodore's blood boil and spun alexis into a destructive fit regardless of reaction 
They swore to their dead that they'll never repeat that mistake and will take steps to ensure such a misfortune never again has any chance of taking root. When Sunday morning came around, Theodore and Alexis held public addresses that sent condolences to the families affected by yesterday's violence. Thousands and thousands of their people tuned in via radio to express their love or show their respect to their leaders. Theodore yelled that he and his citizens will never stop fighting and dying for a bromelia that valued freedom and capitalism. Alexis screamed that the bromelian people mustn't let yesterday's failure deter them from continuing their righteous struggle. Both leaders promised their populations that Bromelia will be won again no matter the cost and that the attempts of Saturday were merely the end of another chapter. But for one pinnacle family, the attacks went according to plans and were demonstrations of the destruction they could dish out. Howling winds blew snow on a white path of black rock that went half a mile up and ended at a gothic castle's shadowy doorstep. Albalon's ruler, Clovis de Alba, looked down at his nation way, way down below as his other half, Wilhelmina, had a plan brewing as she gazed at a worn picture of Morrow Sr. and Sally. Both Albas laughed in their heads at how little Alexis and Fyodor knew of the power they had in their hands. Clovis wanted to keep the two leaders unaware as hiding his nation's link to the Sards was essential in making their plan succeed. It was Wilhelmina who suggested that every written communication between Albaland and Sardgium be memorized and incinerated immediately thereafter. Clovis wrote a letter he fed to a prus blue robin that flew and gave it to Mara, instructing her to carry out their plan's next phase. Sybil salivated at the arrival of her cargo from up north, while Isidra's happiness turned lustful when her delivery from down south came. The breach and coup attempts didn't amount to much at the time, but other situations wouldn't have come about had they not taken place, and as fate would have it, future generations would look back on those attacks as a frightening straw in the wind. And that was the Saturday attempts. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. 
On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic. <laughs>